Hello and welcome to Generation K, a New York Mets podcast. Well, I'm back, back in the hosting groove, filling in once again for the incumbent Chris Rosa. I'm Brett Berry. And as we continue to ride down this treacherous road that is the 2017 Mets season, all I really want to know is how it's all going to end. I mean, this team's inconsistent play has been driving me insane. I'm tired of the up and down weeks. And I just want to pick up the book, flip to the last chapter, and find out what happens. And I'll introduce my co-host now. Chris, firstly, happy belated Father's Day to you. Glad you got to spend your day enjoying a Met matinee victory. Believe it or not, our second of the season. Yeah, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, admittedly, I did miss a few innings of the Mets game on Father's Day to play some backyard baseball with Andrew. That was his request for Father's Day. Um, but but me and the boy Wonder, we were both pretty excited about seeing Jacob deGrom's first home run. Uh, that, that was pretty notable for us, and Andrew is celebrating heartily. That was an excellent moment, sure. Uh, and Doug Salvamini also joins us tonight from his native land of New Jersey. Doug, you're the closest to the action out of all of us. What's worse, hearing about how terrible the Mets are or hearing about how good the Yankees are and how Aaron Judge is the greatest thing to happen to New York since smoking was banned from bars? Well, hearing about the Yankees wasn't so terrible when they were comparing Conforto and Judge because the two of them were raking. But now that Conforto's, you know, hitting like 190 this month, it's uh, it's kind of one-sided and the Yankees were supposed to suck this year and instead we suck. So it's, yeah, it's been rough. This week on the show, we will cover where in the world do we play Wilmer Flores? I'll try to convince these two knuckleheads that using Steven Matz in a pinch hit role wasn't entirely batshit crazy. It was entirely batshit crazy. <laughs> well, well, we'll find out later and uh, we'll kick the tires on a new segment called Would You Rather? First, we'll cover our weekly record, which was three and four, taking our season record to 31 and 37. We took two out of three from the defending champs and then salvaged the final game of a four game set versus our division rival, the Washington Nationals. Uh, And again, following with our format, the best thing you saw this week, we will start with you, Chris. What was the best thing you saw? Uh, There wasn't a lot to choose from, so I'm going to go with the back-to-back great starts from DeGrom, especially Sunday against the Nationals. We saw him struggle earlier this season against Milwaukee and Texas after he threw 118 pitches against Pittsburgh. You know, this past week on Monday, he throws a great complete game against the Cubs, goes 116 pitches. You know, so it's really interesting to see how he'd pitch against the Nationals. who have, you know, a really strong lineup. Great to see him come back Sunday really sharp. You know, we should discuss whether sending him out to the rubber for the ninth inning on Monday was the right move. Um, but either way, it makes Terry look smart. Two best wins the Mets had this week. Yeah, one more thing on DeGrom. He was actually named Player of the Week. That's right. And uh, don't forget his dinger. Well-deserved. Can't take that away from him, too. Um I was going to say Juan Lagares because he was really swinging a hot bat and he was starting to play that patented defense. Now he's dead. <laughs> uh, he gun- yeah, he, he gunned down Harper. And then, um, you know, in typical Juan Lagares fashion, as soon as we start thinking we have a our center fielder, he goes down with a, another injury. So um, it just goes to show we, we can't have nice things. He did have successful thumb surgery today, but it, it's tough to lose a, a defensive wizard like him. And it did look like he was starting to heat up with the bat. It would have been nice to see. But for me... The best thing I saw was Cespedes continuing to hit. He was 9 for 18 this past week, 4 for 5 on Saturday with a towering home run. He was hustling, and I don't know if you guys saw it. He even slid into a base, slid into home plate, and was safe. It was, it was, I thought I'd never see that this year again. But uh, That's actually a violation of team rules, sliding to a base. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I'm sure he was fine. Yeah, I think that's the first time I've seen a slide into home plate this season. I would think all of this momentum from all the jewelry he wears just takes him down to the ground anyway. Just you know, He doesn't seem to like to slide, but for good measure probably with the, the leg injuries. Is it painful to anyone else to watch him play? Like, you know, I know he had a good week at the dish, but even, you know, we're watching tonight the Mets-Dodgers game before we started recording, um, and you see him on the ball down the line, 
you know, really struggling to get around. He really looks like he's in pain out there. It's tough for me to imagine him playing for a long period without having a serious recurrence of that injury. I, I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, he's playing hurt. I mean, he's not. he said he's not 100%, and I think it's going to take the All-Star break to really get him 100% healthy. So they really need to take it easy with him. They need to get someone else out there in the outfield to, you know, and now with Lagar is out, that was the guy, but you need to have someone out there who can come in as a defensive replacement and take a little load off those legs because he – it's inevitable. He's going to get hurt again. He's going to try to do too much. He's going to try to beat out a, you know, a hit in the infield or something, and that heel's going to creep up again, or the or the quad or the hamstring. It's just it, to me, it seems inevitable. Doug, uh, being that Chris likes to call this the podcast of positivity, I think that you should avoid going to me as much as possible because um, <laughs> I have almost nothing good to say about this franchise right now. Well, Doug, we'll check back in with you at the end of the show. Chris and I will take it from here. Sounds I guess. good. Um, what was the uh, what was the worst thing you saw this week, Chris? Uh, I think it's just generally the the entire team's inability to get out of neutral. Uh, they feel stuck. They can't get any momentum. Bad errors. Not sliding into home plate. It feels like there's a lot of apathy. It feels to me like things really need to be shaken up. Uh, fans are starting to feel out of it. And team feels like they're following suit. Doug, what about you? Yeah, just the lack of energy and a lack of urgency was the thing that bothered me the most this week. Um, we just kind of took our whooping from the Nationals and didn't really put up much of a fight. Uh, you hear Sandy come out and say that he's satisfied with the left side of the infield and he doesn't see a reason to call up Rosario. And, you know, he's saying this while Reyes is hitting 197 and Wilmer's made four errors in the field this week. So I don't know what team he's watching he can keep putting positive spins on things as much as he wants, but this team is really sleepwalking, and uh, you know they have every opportunity to shake things up, and they they refuse to. So it's really starting to bother me. Yeah. Well, for me, it was Flores in the field. He committed three errors this week. Also misplayed a pop up uh, when he converged with Bruce in Saturday's loss that was recorded to hit a throwing error on Saturday cost Lugo some extra pitches and an earned run. Uh, he spiked the throw on a double play, on which DeGrom was visibly upset. Chris, you had pointed that out Sunday. Yeah, DeGrom, he, he doesn't seem like a guy who's who's frequently going to react to you know his teammates' failures. And you saw him turn around, and I think you know, it looked like he said something. You know, it looked like he kind of threw his head back in disgust. And, and I, I tend to think that's more than just reacting to that one play. I, I tend to think that's more than just reacting to Wilmer Flores. I think that's kind of a reaction and just in general how he probably feels about his defense behind him not helping him out. You know? Sure. But this kind of segues nicely into our first talking point of the show, and that is where in the world do you play Wilmer Flores? Obviously, his defense has been poor at every position except for first base, but with due to healthy and a right-handed pitcher on the mound, Flores has to play somewhere else on the diamond. Essentially, really, to me, it boils down to second or third base. I looked over his defensive UZRs uh, by position for his career. You know, he's a little over two at first base. About 0.6 at second, but he's negative 2.8 at third and negative 0.2 at shortstop. You know, regardless of the advanced stats, I think it's his lateral mobility at the hot corner and his t- his very tall frame doesn't allow him to get low and field grounders cleanly. Kind of like how David Wright kind of gets in, in almost a 90 degree angle in his haunches to field those balls. But to me, it's because Flores is just a giant and he, he really doesn't have the body to be playing third base. Chris, where did we play Wilmer? Like you said, against righties, you're going to have Duda at first, so you have to find him another position. Against lefties, you can play Flores at first. Um, you know, Duda's numbers, you know, he's a 219 lifetime hitter against lefties, right? So you can take him out of the lineup. Um, but against righties, you got to find somewhere else for Flores to play because Duda's going to be at first. And so it's either second or third. Um, you have Sashini. Sashini just hit a bomb off Kershaw. Nice. You have Rivera, you have Flores, and frankly, Sashini and. 
and Rivera, you don't really have enough stats to know between them and Flores who's the best third baseman. So I think, I, I don't say this very often, but I kind of have to trust Terry Collins. I trust him to look at the three and say, you know, who gives us the best shot? Maybe it is, maybe Flores is the best third baseman between the three of them. Maybe he's played the position the most. Um, you know, maybe it's Rivera. Rivera doesn't have a very strong arm. Sashini is really more of a middle infielder. So, you know, look, at the end of the day, I, I don't actually have a strong feeling as to whether he plays second or third in that situation. I agree with you there. Um, you know, you kind of have to trust Terry to run the right guys out there. And you're going to, if you're going to hit, you're going to play. So he's going to find a spot for Wilmer Flores, regardless if it's second or third. And he'll obviously be playing first against lefties. But to me, he needs to be the everyday second baseman with Walker out. And when Cabrera returns, uh, you move him to first and play T.J. Rivera at second versus a tough left-handed pitcher, which he will do on this upcoming road trip with a slew of lefties lined up to throw against the Mets. And Terry, yeah, we seen that tonight against Kershaw. Yeah, and you go, Sashini gets the start, and uh, as Doug pointed out, he hit a home run tonight. Uh, T.C. did flip Flores and T.J. Rivera on Sunday, so we will see if that trend continues. I think Terry will work uh, um, I think Terry will work Reynolds and even Sashini into a game or two to give Duda and Reyes a blow, uh, but I also think he could and it should consider bringing in either of those two as defensive replacements. Doug, I mean, do you think this is a good idea? Is this an opportunity for Terry to mix and match his defense, depending on the starter? Maybe get your boy Matt Reynolds some playing time versus lefties this week? I want to make one thing clear. Matt Reynolds will never be my boy, and I will never clamor for him to get playing time. So let's get that out of the way. Um, so I think that it's it's a question of, of TJ against Wilmer. And um, I'm not sure that TJ has the arm to play third. And he's looked pretty decent at second. So um, I'm going to lean towards Wilmer at third and TJ at second. You have to get those bats in the lineup. Um, I mean, I don't think you can really hide Wilmer. The ball's going to find him no matter where he goes. And he's kind of, a, you know, a hole in our defense no matter where he plays. So... I think it comes down to I would play TJ wherever he's most comfortable because you kind of know what you're getting out of Flores anyway. Yeah, and I agree with you. Even if you know if it's third base or second base, I still think Terry should make the consideration of, of putting in a defensive replacement. And we'll see if he does that moving forward. Um, moving along to the Cubs series, uh, game one, we did cover this on last week's episode, so we won't really go over this. But since it was a good one, we'll just say this. Jacob was, again, degrominant against the defending champs. He threw his second career complete game, his final line, nine innings, five hits, one run, four walks, six Ks. Bruce Homer's in this game. Cabrera also hits two and then hits the DL with a thumb injury. Game two of this series on Tuesday, Wheeler gets roughed up and we lose to the tune of 14-3. to uh, Zach with his worst start of the season and doesn't make it past two innings. His final line, one and two thirds, six hits, eight runs, three walks, and three strikeouts. The highlight or low light of this game, if you will, was the top of the second. Wheeler gets a quick out. He'd walk Schwarber and then get Contreras to roll a ball over to Flores, who takes a little bit longer to get the ball to Walker, who can't turn two. So now with two outs, Wheeler's facing John Lester, who didn't record his first major league hit until 2015. And what does he do? He slaps a single to left. And this clearly affected Wheeler, who would walk the next two batters and then serve up an opposite field grand slam to Ian Happ. Yeah, I mentioned this on last week's pod that this was just an infuriating sequence of events, um, especially the four pitch walk to the nine hitter, um, you know, with the top of the order due. And uh, I mean, you can't walk the nine hitter to load the bases for the top of the order. Um, it looked like yeah, with the top of the order now consisting of Anthony Rizzo. Yeah, I mean it was kind of impending doom yeah. on deck. And we already talked about the Flores errors. Here's something that's not an error, but still, you know, really hurts his pitcher. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to yeah. put too much on Flores, right? Wheeler's his troubles were largely of his own making here. But have to recognize that over the course of the season, he's 
probably been the Mets' most consistent starter until these last two starts. Um, you know, we just saw DeGrom go through a couple of starts where he really struggled. This is going to happen to every pitcher, especially a pitcher like Wheeler returning from, you know, a couple of years lost to injury and still a relatively young pitcher, a guy with, with not a ton of major league experience. So he's going to have his ups and downs. So, you know, I think I, you guys know he's my guy. I, I don't want to kill him here. Um, I, you know, certainly had another tough start tonight um, as we were starting to record the pod against the Dodgers. Uh, you know, you just hope that DeGrom, you know, that seeing DeGrom bounce back just recently give him the confidence that, you know, he, he can turn this around pretty quick and, and, you know, maybe DeGrom even gets in his ear, uh, starts to take on a little bit of a leadership role and, you know, talks to him about what helped DeGrom get out of that, that little slump he was in. Yeah, Chris, and I, I think it's interesting that uh, Wheeler's worst two starts of the season have come now that we've gone to a six-man rotation. So I wonder if that's really affected him at all. Um, maybe just, you know, having that extra day and not really having his routine. Um, it's, it's interesting to see if, if that continues or if he gets used to pitching on a, on a sixth day instead of a fifth day. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, we'll see if they continue to use the six man. It's tough to have a routine for a guy who hasn't pitched in two years, but yeah, I guess you, you may be right, Doug. I mean, that could be a coincidence or it could be the effect that he's just getting that extra day and, and not really preparing himself properly. Yeah. It's interesting. They're, they're getting used the six man rotation this week, right? Um, it looks like they're going to start either Pill or they were thinking about using Montero, but Montero now came into the game tonight against the Dodgers. Um, so interesting to see them, despite the fact that they have five guys who, you know, other than Wheeler starting to struggle a little bit, you have five of the starters who you really do like who are going pretty well. Um, interesting that you would use a guy like Tyler Pill or Montero, um, that you'd interject them there. But that said, the Mets are going, um, uh, you know, they, they're going to play what, 11 straight days, I think. Um, they they play 10 all, games in 11 days. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you get understand it from that perspective. But it'll be interesting to see whether they continue to use the six-man rotation once they get a couple off days. Yeah, and we'll see if it continues to be successful or, or hurt the pitchers. Moving right along to Game 3, Wednesday, we are 9-4 winners. Jerry Blevins gets the W. Uh, this is one of those classic tarnished Mets wins. And, and to me, it felt like a loss because they get hit with three more major injuries in this game. Uh, you know, but ultimately, the offense steps up late. Highlighted by Curtis Granderson, who belts his 300th home run uh, of his career to break a 4-4 tie in the eighth. Yeah, I'll be honest. It didn't really feel like a loss to me at the time. You know, I wanted to win the series against the Cubs. You know, notwithstanding their struggles so far this season, they're they're one of the better teams in the National League, um, and they're going to come around. So I, I really want to see the Mets take this series. You know, we didn't know. You know, we knew Harvey left the game early, but didn't know he was injured. Um, and so this, it, it didn't really feel like a loss to me, but uh, you're probably right that, it, that that's what it was. I was hoping this was going to be a momentum builder because, you know, they go into the eighth tide and it's kind of a dramatic turn of events with Grandy getting his 300th. And I'm sure the team feels good for him because he's loved in the clubhouse. Um, and yeah, I thought it was a, a good step right before the national series and Clearly, the momentum didn't carry over. Yeah, if you're a non-Mets fan and just a casual baseball fan, you're checking the box scores the next next day. You see, huh, the Mets took two out of three from the Cubs, and uh, Granderson hits his 300th. But as Mets fans, we we know what happened and everything we study under a microscope. To me, again, it just felt like kind of a, a disheartening victory, if you will. Uh, Harvey does start this one and doesn't really last that long. Only goes four innings. His final line, four innings pitch, four hits, four runs, one walk, and five Ks. His velocity dipped below 90 miles per hour at one point. And after the game, he complained of a dead arm. We would later find out that he would uh, get an MRI, and the results are a stress injury to the scapula bone in his right shoulder, and he's expected to miss at least a few weeks. Chris, 
What does this do to the wins bet? Uh, was there a stipulation put in if an injury were to occur? Absolutely not. I took Wheeler despite <laughs> him having an innings limit. Uh, and, and if you're betting on a, a season-long wins total for Harvey, you got to take into account the possibility of injury. You know, what's really interesting to me is you know you saw his velocity drop, but it's not the first time this season where you've seen his velocity drop considerably. And so you wonder how long he's actually been dealing with this injury for. Um, I'm not sure we've actually gotten to the bottom of that. It, yet. That's a good point. You bring that up, and and you know Terry mentioned that he's seen his velocity dip to about 91, 92 at some point in other games. But once it got below 90 miles per hour, he said he was concerned. And that's when they went and got the uh, the news that he had a dead arm and then got the MRI. Yeah, I just remember the start. There's at least one start earlier this year where where Ron Darling, you know, really ex- expressed some concern about him, uh, you know, when he saw his velocity drop, saw him getting knocked around, and, you know, and, and Ron was wondering whether he was injured there. So, you know, uh, maybe the velocity drop was worse in this game, but, but not – not uncharacteristic of what we've seen earlier this year. Yeah, Chris, that uh, that other game where his velocity dipped was the uh, day game against the Braves where he was filling in uh, on short notice for Thor. And um, it, yeah, they were worried about his mechanics and his velocity dropping in that game. Yeah, Doug, you had mentioned um, at a point in that game, Dan Warthin was already on the top step before the ball even crossed the plate because he saw something noticeably wrong with, uh, with Matt exactly. that day. And now, unfortunately, he is on the shelf for a while. Wrapping up this series, a couple of things that I wanted to point out, uh, you know, Joe Madden pulling the right strings again, hitting Rizzo in the leadoff spot, uh, decides to shake up the lineup in game two. His team noticeably flat, playing under 500 baseball, so the skipper pencils in his best hitter, Anthony Rizzo, into the leadoff spot, and Madden strikes gold once again. Rizzo, uh, Rizzo would lead off games two and three with home runs and is stuck there ever since. The Cubs are now back over 500 and will look to muddy up an already messy pack of mediocre ball clubs vying for what essentially looks like uh, the one wild card spot with the teams out west playing so well. Yeah, I, I think it's a little early to say whether the teams out west are going to keep up that pace. You know, the Rockies and the Diamondbacks, they're both, you know, young teams, not with a lot of experience, you know, playing for a playoff spot down the stretch. So we'll see if they come back to earth a little bit. You know, I know 538 loves them right now. Um, but that said, you know, yeah, certainly the Cubs, their Cubs are going to fight their way back into it. Right. Well, hopefully the Mets do as well. Uh, Terry Collins made a similar move uh, by sliding Cespedes into the two hole, and he has responded going four for nine with a home run. But but Terry's explanation caused a little bit of a stir in the media. And I'll, I'll quote Terry here. He says, well, I was headed to the ballpark today and I thought, who is the most valuable player in the National League? Chris Bryant. And he hit second. Well, who was the most valuable player in the American League last year? Mike Trout. And he hit second. So Collins says, uh, I thought it would be OK if he hit second, um, meaning Cespedes. Uh, you know, he's an elite group, in my opinion. Chris, what, what are your thoughts on that quote? I'm actually okay with that move. You know, he's following his gut, but he's not doing it in a way that's contrary to uh, to statistics, logic, and reason. So, you know, <laughs> look, you can follow your gut a little bit. Um, and so I, I didn't mind this move. It, shake things up. The Mets need to be shaken up. I agree with him. Well, he actually did say that this wasn't a matter of shaking things up. He just wanted to put the best possible lineup in at that point. Well, that would be the first time this year that he's tried to do that. So that's a step in the right direction. Um, but yeah, mixing it up and not staying pat is exactly what I've been calling for. Um, so I'm okay with the move. Um, I mean, the, the other obvious thing to shake things up is to bring up Rosario, which we've been saying over and over again, and they refuse to do it. So maybe this is a step in the right direction. Um, maybe they're going to make some changes with the lineup and the guys that are on the team and maybe the manager and... Who knows? If we become the dumpster fire that we're looking at. Doug just at, wants to blow the season up and start over. 
He really wants I mean, to. We're, we're headed <laughs> down that, that reset path. Button? So. Yeah, unfortunately, it seems that way. But again, it's to me, it's still early, guys. They call me crazy, but I think it's still early. Um, You're fucking crazy. <laughs> and there goes the explicit rating. More injuries again in this series. Harvey was just one of the many casualties this uh, this uh, this Cub series as injuries continue to decimate this team. The other injuries, of course, uh, Cabrera hit the shelf with a thumb sprain early in the week after hitting two home runs. Neil Walker tries to beat out a push bunt, but he comes up lame and is in considerable pain. And he's been diagnosed with a partially torn hamstring, expected to begin rehab in about two to three weeks. Smoker with a left shoulder strain after throwing 81 pitches in a relief of Wheeler on Wednesday. And also not in this series, but the next night, Juan Lagares aggravates his thumb diving for a ball. And he'd later be diagnosed with a fracture. And there's no timetable for his return. Oh, and bonus injury news. Thor is still weeks away from even picking up a baseball, pushing his return out at least another month. But hey, guys, good news. David Wright is resuming baseball activities. Really, really looking forward to that. I'm sure he'll be back in no That's time. Right. In fairness, it's not that he's actually resuming them now. It's that he's going to resume them on July 1st. We'll see if he actually gets there. You think he's got like Xing uh, you know, the boxes off on his calendar like, uh, like days before Christmas? Uh, who knows? Um, all told now, we have nine players on the DL, two of which who are arguably our two most important pitchers coming to the season, right, with Syndergaard and Familia being our closer, and essentially a third of our starting lineup. So I ask you this, will it ever end? I mean, what the hell is going on? Anyone care to take a shot at analyzing this? Or, I mean, do we move on? I, the team cannot be this uh, unfortunate the entire season. You know, it's tough to uh, to analyze this too much. You know, I think we've talked at length about, you know, Thor and you know him coming back bulked up and Cespedes coming back bulked up and both of them ending up injured. You know, the one thing I'll note that, I don't know how much weight to give this, but, you know, I mentioned that last week, you know, got out early for the Mets to see them play the Rangers. Got out there actually before the Mets even came out. Uh, Rangers were still taking their BP. Uh, so the Mets are coming up uh, to start their warm-ups when, when I was already there sitting right behind the dugout. And they went through the most lackadaisical stretching and warm-up routine I've ever seen. Just, you know, kind of jogging back and forth about 20 yards. You know, I remember when I was younger watching guys kind of Get, go through their sprints in the outfield, you know, a number of different exercises. And the Mets only cover about 20 yards. They do it at a walking pace, um, and they just don't look like they're very focused and look like they're really working hard to get ready for the game. Every player has to do their own thing and figure out what's right for them to get ready. But, you know, I do wonder how focused they are. I wonder how much uh, the strength and conditioning staff is really doing their job um, you know, you see so many hamstring injuries. You know, it just feels to me like the guys aren't preparing right, and I think that's on that's on obviously the strength and conditioning staff to make sure that um, you know guys are stretching appropriately, and it's also on Terry Collins making sure the guys are are taking their job seriously. Take it with a grain of salt. It's not like I watch major league warm ups every day, but yeah, it, it yeah. was notable to me. Doug, what about you? Well, I mean, this was always a possibility, and an injury riddled season was always, you know on the table as, as a really distinct possibility. Um, we came up with this name Generation K for the rotation because they're the most talented and hyped rotation since, you know, the 90s, but they are one giant question mark. Um, unfortunately, the name continues to be prophetic. Um, you know, Wheeler comes back and looks great for a couple starts, but then Thor goes down. And the same weekend that Mats and Lugo rejoin the team, Harvey goes out. You, you got a bunch of hard-throwing guys, and they just can't get healthy at the same time. It's the same story over and over. Um, you have the same thing with Lagaris. He starts playing well, and then he breaks his thumb. Um, and, you know, we haven't even hit the obligatory Travis Darno DL stint. So, 
Um, I mean, I'm sure that's coming next. This team is just over and over with the injuries every year. The other issue in the series was something that we debated uh, internally as a as a group here, and that was the call that Terry made to pinch hit Steven Matz with the bases loaded in the fourth inning of Wednesday's game. Uh, this was, again, a hot-button topic between us when it occurred, and as well into the following day, Doug even had to step away from the chat at one point and collect his thoughts. Uh, let's set up the scene for those who don't remember. Wednesday night, both Michael Conforto and Yoana Cespedes were on the bench nursing minor ailments. Conforto's back. Um, you know, he did declare himself available, saying he was feeling much better and thought he'd be able to contribute. Uh, but with the lefty Montgomery on the mound and mired in a bit of a slump, uh, he sat in favor of Lagares. Cespedes, who had been dealing with tendonitis in his heel, needed extra time to get ready for a pinch-hitting appearance. It was Dickie Scott's responsibility to tell Terry when he'd be ready to go. Cess said he needed about 30 minutes to prepare. So Terry's bench for the night was a slumping, stiff-back Conforto, a less-than-100% Cespedes, a left-handed hitter in Duda with the lefty on the mound, and the backup catcher, Rene Rivera. Why was there a four-man bench, you ask? Well, before Wednesday night's game, Sandy had to replace Josh Smoker, and instead of a position player, he calls up everyone's favorite Met, Rafael Montero, giving Terry an extra arm out of the pen. And then disaster strikes. Walker goes down with a hamstring injury, forcing Terry to plug Duda at first and slide TJ Rivera over to second base, and now he's left with his two ailing outfielders and his backup backstop. Then... Harvey has to be removed, and Terry is forced to pinch hit for him with the bases loaded and down 4-1 in the bottom of the fourth inning. So we've got three options here if you're Terry, and only three because Cespedes was not ready to hit considering how early it was in the game. You pinch hit with Conforto, you pinch hit with your backup catcher, Rene Rivera, and note that the emergency catcher is Neil Walker, who is now injured and out of this game, or you use a pitcher, namely Steven Matz, a right-handed hitter who can handle the bat. TC decides to gamble and use Matts instead of a position player, and while it all pays off, there were some notable disagreements with the decision. I think 99% of people had the same reaction, including Keith Hernandez and pretty much everybody I saw on Twitter. And it was all in the realm of, what the fuck? Um, I thought it was embarrassing. I thought it was stupid. I couldn't fathom leaving Conforto on the bench, no matter what the matchup was. Putting a pitcher in to hit over your best hitter or second best hitter, whatever you want to categorize him as, I thought it was insane. Uh, initially, I thought Conforto must have been unavailable, so that maybe Terry didn't really have a choice. But then a couple innings later, they use him in the sixth, so I, it's just baffling to me. You know, Brett's guess, and, and one of his arguments was that uh, he didn't want the lefty-lefty matchup, and that Conforto had struggled against lefties recently, but... I mean, no matter what the situation, don't you want your best hitter in that situation? The bases are loaded. This is your shot. He's he's the go-ahead run there. Um, I just don't think there's any excuse for not using him. Here's what I'll say about this decision. It's still early in the game. You've now been left with very limited options if you're Terry Collins, and you have to do something here. The ball has to be put in play. Anything to try to scratch out a run and maybe just continue to chip away at this deficit. Uh, this was a matchup that Terry did not want to touch with the lefty Montgomery and the currently slumping left-handed hitter Conforto. And again, considering the inning, he did not want to burn his backup catcher with the other backup catcher, Neil Walker, out of the game. If he sends up Conforto, not only are you running the risk of an unproductive at-bat or maybe even a re-injury or, or you know an injury to the back, you've now burned yet another position player with still five full innings to play and only Rene Rivera available to play the field. Initially, I had told Will in the chat that I, I would have used Rivera there and then gambled with no backup catcher, but this is before I knew that Neil Walker was the emergency catcher. So I stick by the decision that Terry made by using his best available right-handed hitter 
to try to make something happen and chip away. No, look, that that's I gotta say, I think that's a completely ridiculous argument. You don't. It, it's not. You're talking about a matchup, but the only reason you play matchups is to try and get the better numbers, right? You don't. There's nothing inherently advantageous about hitting a righty against the lefty. You use a righty if he's gonna have a bet, better numbers against the lefty than Conforto would. Conforto against the lefty is still a better matchup than one of your pitchers against the lefty. All right, so I, I think that's kind of silly. Yeah, and you, you talk about the risk of the re-injury. Well, you use him two innings later. Yeah, but it wasn't right. Much so of if a he wasn't ready to situation. play, it, it wasn't. So why are you going to use him in a lower leverage situation, right? If you're going to send him up there to hit, use him in the highest leverage situation there is. Right? It's not like he's going to swing softer in a lower leverage situation. See, that's where I disagree. I think that's a silly argument. That's where I disagree, Chris. I think a young player who's going to try to try to save the day here is going to muscle up and maybe maybe do something to that back that he was not prepared to do. So you think you think Terry Collins didn't want to use him with the bases loaded because he thought he might hurt himself, no. but was willing to use him in a situation. I mean, look, I, I just think that's a silly I argument. Think he I think my it's a argument silly is argument. that he didn't use him I, because he's a left-handed hitter and, and maybe because of Mont- Montgomery's arm slot. It was tough for him to pick up the ball. I know that he has decent numbers. He hits, He's hitting around 260 against lefties this year, but it's still it's still a lefty-lefty matchup, and you run the risk of him whiffing and then really just not doing anything with the at-bat as opposed to Matt's getting a, a better look at the ball because he's in the in the right-hander batter's, batter's box. And being able to put the ball in play. And you saw, I mean, look, I know you made the argument that you can't praise Terry for this working out because it was a gamble and it paid off. But he did exactly what Terry was hoping that Mats would do put the ball in play and make something happen. And he beat out a ground ball and, and, it, and ended up, you know, we ended up chipping away two runs that inning. So that's all I'm trying to say. I know you guys want to kill the decision because it just doesn't make sense to, to send up a pitcher when you have arguably one of the. It's a bad decision. Okay. It, it, and that may be your opinion. I think it was a gamble. I'm not saying it was a good or bad decision. It was a gamble and it paid off. And you can't kill Terry. I can absolutely for, can kill Terry. For it was a bad gambling. decision. No, it was a bad decision. Terry did this earlier in the season too, where he, you know, he didn't use somebody in a high leverage situation. And you're thinking, oh, maybe he's got the day off tonight. Maybe he's unavailable. And two, um, he did this with Conforto, I believe. Uh, two innings later, he hits him to like lead off the seventh inning and he hits a ground ball for a base hit. And it's like, okay, you didn't use him with the bases loaded. But now you're going to put him up in, to lead off the seventh. Like, a guy's either injured and unavailable, or he's ready to play, and he goes and hits in the biggest spot. That, so to me, the injury is is not an excuse. Let me add one thing. There's a situation where this is a defensible decision. If he tried to get Cespedes up, and Cespedes couldn't get, up, couldn't get loose quick enough, and then he would have had to rush Conforto in there, right— then that's okay, right? That that that's that's a, that's a defensible decision. Similarly, if he told Conforto to get up and Conforto couldn't get loose, and so he said, "Okay, I got to throw Mats in there." I'm fine with either of those things, but to say I like the matchup better with Mats, right, is just basically saying I'm throwing all these numbers out the window and making a decision that is illogical, and that. I can't defend. I understand about not using Rivera. It's early in the game, and your emergency catcher is already gone. So I'm not saying you have to use Rivera, but I'm just saying if the decision, if he made the decision, I have enough time to get up Conforto, or I, or I'm going to use Mats. Right, the lefty righty thing doesn't matter to me because you still have a better matchup with Conforto. The injury thing doesn't matter unless you're going to give him the whole night off. Right, if they were going to say, hey, he was not available, that's fine. But if you're going to use him anyway. You got to use them in the highest leverage situation. You can't go against the numbers and guess. And uh, you know, one important thing to note: it's not like you had one runner on, right? There's no chance you could have a higher leverage situation later in the game. You have the bases loaded and one out, 
right? So this is the highest leverage situation you can get. Runs are not worth more later in the game. That's that's why it's an indefensible decision unless you had an issue where you couldn't get guys up in time. In which case, in which case, I understand that you can't throw up Conforto, especially with a back injury, if he hasn't had enough time to warm up. But I didn't hear. I I haven't heard that. I was chomping at the bit to hear the the sound bits from from Terry's presser after the game, and he didn't even make mention of Conforto in that situation. He just he mentioned that you know he looked over to Dick Scott and said you know is Cespedes ready, and he wasn't. And he was just happy that Matt's, you know, came through for him. He didn't even mention Conforto. So the, the mystery still remains why the hell wasn't Conforto available in that situation and then available two innings later. So, yeah, that's really it's really troubling to me. It, it kind of seems to me as though he's so bent on doing it by the book, saying, you know, you have a lefty pitcher in, I have to use a righty pinch hitter that he just dismisses Conforto out of mind, which which would be really frightening to me. I, I don't know whether that's what happened, but that, that would be a pretty frustrating result. And not to take anything away from Matt's because he is a hell of a hitter and he the kid is an athlete. Mm-hmm. He can run, he can hit, he can do everything. Um, not taking anything away from him. It's just when it comes down to, do I want Conforto hitting or do I want any of my pitchers hitting, even if it's, I, I mean, unless it's Bumgarner, you, you want Conforto in there. No, even if it's Bumgarner. <laughs> <laughs> Some may argue on the West Coast that you'd rather have Bumgarner there. He did DH for a couple of games last year. Well, I guess this is a mistrial because we really didn't get to resolve the issue here, and I still think I can convince you guys otherwise. But we'll move right along to the National Series, unfortunately. Uh, game one Thursday, we're 8-3 losers. Gazelman gets the loss. The Nats come in losers of five of their last six. They lose their closer, Coda Glover, to a freak shower injury, and you know, no need to speculate on what happened in there. As we're told, he hurt his back bending over for body soap. Um, the Mets just took two out of three from Chicago, winning the previous night in a come-from-behind fashion, and there were rumblings that, hey, maybe somehow we take two out of three, or dare I say sweep the Nats, get back to 500, find ourselves right back in this. Uh, but of course, that was not the case. For the record, there is not a single Mets fan anywhere who thought we were going to sweep the Nationals. Just want to throw that out. Not <laughs> saying that we thought. They thought, hey, maybe like if we if we sweep the Nats, look, we're back at 500. I mean... The, Crazier things have happened. I'm just kidding. If we don't lose the rest of the season, we're going to win the championship. <laughs> they, 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 really, uh, they really showed me for having any faith in last week's show. I'm really going to pay for that during wager time this yeah. week. Well, Gazelman coming off three solid starts is hit hard. He's nibbling corners, not getting sink on that ball, and uh, is greeted in the first inning by a Bryce Harper homer. Uh, this ball launches at 116.3 miles per hour. It's a laser beam off the seats into right field that ricochets back into the field, and Bruce almost catches it. Um, unfortunately, it still counts as a home run. Gazelman allows seven earned runs and ten hits in five innings, capping off the worst start of his brief career. Um, his defense didn't help either, and the Mets just looked like they were playing with very little energy. Yeah, things seemed to snowball. Uh, he gave up the early runs, but then he, he kind of righted the ship. Um, and next thing you know, uh, a grounder finds a hole here, and Murph is hitting a grounder down the line that gets under Duda's glove and next thing you know it's a it's a blowout um and you know not to blame Duda there because that was a hell of a hit but we do know that Gazelman gives up lots of ground balls and we've said over and over that the defense behind him needs to be on its game um and that clearly wasn't happening on this night yeah I mean look nights like this are going to happen that's a good Nationals lineup giving up home runs to Harper um you know, I think it'd be more concerned if he's walking the ballpark. You give up some ground ball hits. You give up a home run to Harper. That's just the type of thing that happens. Right. The Nats broke this open in the top of the fifth. Daniel Murphy headlines the onslaught with a two-run triple that made a 4-1. to one, And the Nats would tack on three more on a Rendon single. And then a two-run home run by Michael A. Taylor. Why does Michael Taylor kill us? I, can anyone explain that to me? 
It just feels like he's always destroying us. It feels like every every mediocre hitter is destroying the Mets. If we give up one more home run to a backup catcher, I'm going to have to kill someone. You're jumping ahead a little bit, Chris, and I'll save this nugget for you later. But uh, we'll move on to game two. Friday, 7-2 losers. Mats gets the loss. Steven actually pitched pretty well. Uh, despite his final line, he tosses seven innings but would allow homers to three right-handed hitters. That man, Michael Taylor, again homers. Matt Wieters, who's a switch hitter batting righty homers, and Anthony Rendon, who, like Murphy, continues to pummel Met pitching. Mets look flat on both sides of the ball yet again. Cespedes commits two errors, and Max Scherzer stymies the Mets as he breezes through eight frames. Here's a little nugget for you. He never faced more than four batters in an inning. Yeah, I mean, look, on the bright side, you have you have Mats Friday and Lugo Saturday, both not with great starts, but with solid starts against good lineups following up their great starts last weekend, you know, when they returned the rotation. So, you know, that's really, I think, has to be one of the one of the reasons for hope here is that you're starting to now get the depth of pitching that the Mets need to uh, to be competitive. Yeah, now you just need the uh, the defense to step up and the offense to do what they did last year, and that's get timely hits. Well, similar to Mother's Day, MLB would honor Father's Day with the powder blue uniforms, gear, and even the light blue laces on the ball on Sunday. Real quick reaction, guys. What was your thoughts about the light blue laces? Meh. Not a big fan. Doug, I mean, I, there was concerns that the batters would have trouble picking up the spin on the ball because they look for that that dot when the slider comes in on them. I thought it was ridiculous that they have these like almost gray laces on the baseballs. Yeah, I'm not a fan and also not really a fan of the everybody wearing the same color because as we've talked about um, on the Mother's Day pod, it's it's really tough to tell who's who. When they're put in highlights of other games, it's like, oh, was this last inning or, oh, this is two different teams. And Yeah, I agree. I, I hate them all having the same color lettering. It's confusing. The socks look terrible. Get your shit together, Major League Baseball. So it was blue by you for the weekend, and the Mets would be at their own crossroads after dropping the first two games. Uh, they would need to take these next two to split the series, and that moves us right along to game three. Saturday, we are 7-4 losers. Lugo gets the loss. Uh, Seth goes seven, allows only three earned runs, but is handed a loss as the Mets strand a plethora of runners in scoring position, bouncing into four double plays in the process, Wilmer committing two of those. Lugo serves up a leadoff home run to Trey Turner, who's becoming very annoying. And Jose Lobatone adds his name to the long list of guys who make most of their limited playing time versus the Mets as yet another backup catcher homers. Guys, for $20, I will PayPal you $20 if you can guess this. In chronological order, can you name the five backup catchers in chronological order that have homered off Mets pitching this year? No. Doug, any guesses? Pass. <laughs> All right, you both owe me 20 bucks. Kurt Suzuki, Manny Pina, Jeff Mathis, Robinson Chirinos, and Jose Lobatone. What a cast of characters. I mean, unbelievable that this, it's just one of those years that these guys are just going to crush us. We move right along to game four, and it's Sunday, Father's Day. Big day for the Mets because they haven't played very well on Sunday matinee games, but they actually come out winners six to one, and uh, the Mets do salvage the finale. And what was a banner day for Jacob deGrom as he pitches eight brilliant innings works around more bad infield defense, and also contributes with the stick. It's his first major league career home run, an opposite field shot into the M&M party deck. I was able to watch this win with my dad, uh, which is always great, and my, and my nephew um, and my, my brother-in-law. Uh, it certainly softened the blow from the three disappointing losses leading up to the Father's Day game. Michael Conforto contributes finally with two hits and an RBI as he looks to get things going, and after again slumping and battling a back issue that had him limited earlier this yeah, week. Yeah, a couple of things on this game uh, that I wanted to bring up. We're finally on the end of a couple uh, 
Daniel Murphy fielding adventures on on the good side. <laughs> he had that fly ball that he lost in the sun and then a throwing error. Uh, it was nice to be on the other side of that for a change. Um, I didn't see him put on chapstick afterwards, but uh, maybe that's just an October thing. And then like the 10th guy this season, uh, Duda, goes into home plate and doesn't slide. Yet somehow it works out because he accidentally kicks the catcher's glove and the ball goes flying. Um, Keith Hernandez needs to have a talk with these guys. Fundamentals. Fundies. 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 They're pretty bad this year. Wrapping up the series issues. Lots of lobs. Lots of runners with scoring positions. And lots of GIDPs. The rally killers for the Mets. In this national series alone, they had 15 guys left on base. They were 2 for 16 with runners in scoring position. And 7 double plays that they grounded into. They were also 3 for 13 with runners in scoring position. And left 9 on base in that last game in the Cubs series. Uh, you know, these are rally killers for the Mets. They've always seemed to get runners on and just hope for that three-run homer. This team does not run well enough and make enough consistent contact, and it tends to hurt them. Even when the offense is technically clicking, we have seen too many times this year where the Mets get something going and can't play runs. And then again, just just to kind of cap off this series, the Nats are just too much to handle at this point. I mean, 2015 is starting to look like truly a magical season in regards to winning a division. The Nationals are stacked offensively up and down the lineup. You know, they've got a bona fide number one in Max Scherzer. Strasburg and Gio Gonzalez are a great 2-3 punch behind him. And, and they will add bullpen depth come, Jul- uh, come July. They're a class above the Mets right now, and especially with the way the pitching has been this season. And just to, again, I mean, what, what else do we say about Daniel Murphy? He He's reached base in every single game he's played against the Mets. 28 games, he's reached base in all of them. 44 hits to the tune of a 396 batting average with 8 homers and 29 RBIs and a 1.15 nine OPS. This guy just continues to crush us. It really frustrates me to hear Mets fans who, you know, who want to say, well, because his defense isn't good, you know, we're glad to get rid of him or, you know, because he makes these errors. It just seems completely ridiculous to me. Uh, You know, he's a great player. He's an MVP. He's best second baseman in the league. Um, He's a good clubhouse guy too. I mean, he was, he he was a great Met and I say was being the operative word because I don't think he'll ever come back. This brings us now to our new segment, the Would You Rather. Um, this is something we're going to try out this week. I'll be asking the two of you, would you rather type scenarios. Your answers can be as elaborate or short as you want. Some may take more explaining than others. And, uh, and note that these are hypothetical scenarios. We have no way of knowing if these will actually happen. So sticking with the Nats and their current second baseman, would you rather have kept Daniel Murphy if it meant not resigning Yoenis Cespedes? Quickly go over the numbers for you. Murphy, as a national, a 346 batting average, 978 OPS, he finished second in the MVP voting last year after clubbing a career-high 25 homers and driving in 104. Thank you very much, Chris Bryant. But defensively, you know, he's still a numbskull. He's got a negative zone rating of negative 6.9 at second base in 2016, and then again, negative 4.4 in 2017. We saw a lot of Murphalicious baseball this weekend. But, you know, his current contract, what a bargain, three years for $37.5 million. So I start with you, Doug. Would you rather have kept Daniel Murphy if it meant not resigning Yohannes Cespedes? Well, I think the question and the thing that you have to analyze really is Cespedes and Walker or Murphy and who? Because obviously you have to have one or the other and the other position is going to be filled by somebody different. If it means that Curtis Granderson is going to be playing every single day in center field, I'll take Cespedes and Walker. I mean, Murphy's an unbelievable hitter. You can't deny that. Lagares can't stay healthy. Granderson's fallen off a cliff with age. Um, you know, we don't know whether Bruce would have been on the team or not. 
So it's really hard to say what our outfield would look like. We might not even have any power at all in the outfield, other than Conforto, obviously. You're kind of making the assumption there, Doug, that if they keep Murphy, don't resign Cespedes, they don't sign anybody else in the outfield. You know, don't forget that Murphy is on a three-year, $37.5 million contract, while Cespedes is four years, $110 million, right? So if they keep Murphy, don't resign Cespedes, you have some money to go out and pick up another outfielder, right? But I, I think that's kind of getting besides the point. You know, to me, it's a really close call. Cespedes has, has been a catalyst for the Mets, you know, had some really great moments. You know, but Murphy has the better numbers, and he brings the offense at a position you know, where getting that type of production is more rare. You can find another corner outfielder to produce. Tough to find a second baseman who's going to produce at the level of Murphy or anything even close to that. You know, and then when you take into account a couple other things, you know, one, as I mentioned already, the difference in uh, their contracts. And second, the fact that if you keep Murphy, you're kind of getting a double impact, right? Because you're making the Mets better and making a division rival worse. Whereas, you know, who knows where Cespedes goes if the Mets don't re-sign him. So, you know, I think it's a close call and it's a great question. I don't want to give up Jonas Cespedes, but, you know, in this situation, if the choice is, um, you know, having lost Jonas Cespedes after 2015 or, um, you know, and getting to keep Murphy, I think you want to keep Murphy. Yeah, I mean, if you strip them of their names, it's really not close at all. You look at the numbers and you'd say Murphy every time. But I think Cespedes just brings more to the Mets and this organization than than say Murphy had in the past. I mean, Murphy had a, an incredible run in the, in the postseason in 2015, and you know he capitalized off that. The Mets had already made the, made up their minds. We discussed this earlier in the show, or before the show we recorded, um, that the Mets had already made up their minds. They weren't going to resign Daniel Murphy, and I think that bringing in Cespedes certainly softened the blow. But the results haven't been the same. You know, you, you get those moments with Cespedes. You see the prolific power, but you know the injuries now, and you just—he looks like he's just slowing down. When Murphy only seems to be just getting better. Um, I think I think an important point on that also is when you're making the decision, right? If the Mets, if you ask me that question at the end of 2015, would you rather keep Murphy or resign Cespedes? It's an absolute no-brainer because at that point, all you'd seen is one series, you know, one playoff, right? Uh, yeah, like month, or exactly right? one month of that type of production from Murphy. Um, you know, we're looking at it now with the benefit of hindsight. I mean, now I think it's tough to argue that you wouldn't rather have Murphy. Um, but you know, that's not information the Mets had at the time. I don't think, you know, I think, I, I don't think any of us thought that Murphy would continue producing at the level he did in those playoffs, which is what's Yeah. Happened. Even with that little media nugget about Kevin Long correcting his swing and telling him, you know, Murphy, you can hit for power. We really didn't think it would translate into this type of, you know, success. No. So yeah, you're right. Moving right along to our second, would you rather? And this is going to be about everyone's favorite prospect, Ahmed Rosario. Would you rather call up Ahmed Rosario to upgrade your infield defense, which is clearly a big bugaboo for the Mets, uh, with the realistic potential of him struggling with the bat? Or do you have him called up later in the season, after the Mets are essentially eliminated, and watch him play every day and excel against some mediocre pitching late in the season? So I'll just I'll strip that down and give you the the, the, the question. Would you rather have Rosario up now to upgrade the defense while he may struggle with the bat or have him up later and have him type in, in like a type of Dansby Swanson situation where he's going to play every day and, and hit and play hard and kind of boost his confidence going into 2018. If you honestly believe that he's going to struggle with the bat, you know, where the question is, do you want him up now with the glove and let him struggle with the bat and work his way through it? Or do you give him more time to build up his bat? I think if you believe that that's the case, then it probably does make sense to leave him down, right? I mean, having the better glove, it, realistically, you know, I love the Mets, but realistically, is it going to make that much of a difference this season? 
Probably not. You know, we're starting to fall out of it. You don't want to impair the development of a young player. You know, maybe a couple weeks ago, it's different because he may, at that point, you know, you still felt like you could salvage a season. That's starting to get a less realistic probability. But that said, that's assuming that he's going to struggle with the bat and that a little bit of extra time down on the farm helps him develop. I guess I'm not entirely convinced of that. I'm not entirely convinced he's going to develop that much more at the bat. So I would bring him up. But if you did think he was going to struggle, then I think you would give him some more time to develop that. Don't don't make him struggle at the major league level. The benefit of having his glove up here is is you know relatively minor. And before I go to you, Doug, ironically, it's Rosario with the stick that's that he's been succeeding in in AAA. He's batting three thirty two, fifteen doubles, four triple, seven homers, twelve stolen bases. But he's made eleven errors in sixty four games this year. So. You know, we could say either way the argument, if he comes up and struggles on either side of the ball, would you rather see that or have him come up and just excel and kind of build that confidence when you're still just kind of having him, you know, kill AAA pitching until he's ready? You you said the second half of the would you rather is bring him up after the Mets are essentially eliminated? Yes. Is that like next week or? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yes, I would like to see Rosario next week. Um, Is it? Yeah. Bring him up now. I mean, we've said this a million times. just bring them up. It's going to give us a reason to watch. It's going to give us some life, hopefully. Um, I, I don't see a downside. I mean, if he struggles, then when Cabrera comes back, send him back down. And and uh, at least he got a taste of the majors, and you know he can come back up later. Um, but, Doug, if you thought he, if you were convinced he was going to struggle right now. Would you bat, bring him up? Would you bring him up? Uh, yes. I would have brought him up last week so that he could get the 10 days to play while Cabrera is on the shelf. So that last week, I still believe it. Fair enough. Fair enough. There's no wrong answer. And would you rather? In fairness, using Steven Matz as a pinch hitter over over Michael Conforto is still a wrong answer, <laughs> even in this. Well, good thing it's not part of would you rather. Staying on the same plane, uh, would you rather see the team fold for the rest of the season, have Terry Collins fired during the All-Star break and start over in 2018, or watch this team make yet another magical run at a playoff spot and play their way into a World Series if it meant Terry Collins would get another year as manager, Doug, we don't have a prayer of getting into nor winning a World Series. But Doug, this is would you rather? These are hypothetical situations. I'm asking you, yeah. would you rather? You can't challenge the hypothetical. It's not. A, it's a hypothetical. We're 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 going with hypotheticals here. He is going to. It's one or the other. It's the team plays terrible and Terry Collins gets fired and the the, the season's shot and we get ready for 2018. Or you get to see another magical run at a playoff spot, and they go to a World Series, but it means Terry gets another year of managing. This is a no-brainer. If you if the if the option is Mets going to the World Series or Mets not going to the World Series and they get to fire Terry Collins, I mean, come on. The, you want to go to the World Series. You, if, if you answer anything else, you're not a real Mets fan, right? I was just I, trying to I, I, I was trying to gauge Doug's dislike and hatred for Terry. I just really wanted to see if he would if he would give up a World Series, another World Series appearance, if it meant Terry getting the axe at the All Star Party. As as Doug's lawyer, I'm not gonna let I'm not gonna let him uh, incriminate himself as being that big of a hater. <laughs> well, in typical me fashion, I didn't read the end of the question. I just saw, would you rather the Mets fold this season and have Terry Collins fired? And I just wrote down yes and talked about how much I. I hate him. Um, I didn't actually read the part about the World Series and all that. Uh, yeah, to, to, I think to be clear, like I would rather see them fold now and get a new manager than make a run for the second wild card, get knocked out in the wild card and then game. Fall short. Um, 
you know, I, I would rather see them just struggle and replace Terry Collins than just get to play one playoff, one wild card game. Yeah, I mean, World Series, obviously, you have to go with the World Series. But if, if we're talking about a first round exit from the playoffs, then I'd rather the fire and brimstone and have a, a shitty summer and goodbye to Terry. Um, just the thought of the Mets playing well enough to make a magical run with uh, with Cabrera at short and, and with uh, Flores a third and it would be like watching angels in the outfield you just see guys like magically <laughs> diving and making miraculous catches it's just it's laughable to think that they could go on a run like hey that. it's would you rather anything can happen anything is possible uh capping off our would you rather segment and this is kind of just a fun one here for you guys who would you rather root for in the 2017 world series the yankees or the nationals both teams currently sit atop their respective divisions actually i think boston won tonight but they are close, obviously, and will likely be the two most active teams heading into the trade deadline. Not crazy to think they could face off in the fall classic. Doug, would you rather root for the Yankees or the Nationals? If you had to pick. How is this a fun one for us? How is this a fun one for us? This, there's nothing it's objectively fun about fun. this. Even thinking about it is making me sick. It's like the Giants and Patriots It's like all the Phillies and Yankees in 2009. It's just, ugh, it's just a disaster. <laughs> we'll be... I plead the fifth. <laughs> One, two, well, three, four, five. Well, Doug, I just want to know, would you rather watch the Yankees or the Nationals in the World Series? I wouldn't root for anyone. Um, I think I would hate to see the Yankees. No, you have to. It's it's it's. would you rather play by the rules. You know what? It. I'm not sure I like this segment. Gun to your head. Uh, <laughs> um, I would hate to see the Yankees win more just because, like I mentioned, this was supposed to be a down year for them and they've kind of come out of nowhere. And, yeah. um, I don't think I can, I can handle the... Uh, the Aaron Judge, uh, New York Post headlines and back pages all throughout October. Um, you know, I'm already looking forward to seeing Christian Hackenberg on the no, back pages. No, rule number not, two. Uh, Aaron Judge. Breaking rule number two. You're all over the place tonight, Doug. <laughs> I'm punchy. It's late. That's true. Well, this moves us to the conclusion of our show. And of course, it's wager time. We update you on the Harvey Wheeler count. And the score still remains Harvey 4, Wheeler 3. It's probably going to finish that like way, too. Them is- <laughs> I feel like neither of them has won a game in weeks. Last week's score updating you. Will sits at 15 atop the leaderboard. Doug in second with 13. And Chris with the Ofer. He still sits How's at 10. How's it feel back there, Chris? We move along to this week's over-unders. Weekly wins. We start off with that one. Three and a half. We've got seven games total. And this is without, without your knowledge of knowing what happens tonight. Let's pretend we don't know that. Total of seven games. I think we're all picking the under anyway. But a total of seven games. Four at LA and then three at San Francisco. Chris. Uh, under. Yeah. All right. Here, here's my bold prediction. I think the Mets win two or less games this week, and I think that Terry Collins never manages another game at City Field. You don't think he makes it back, huh? Fired before they get yeah. home. Um, Doug, what about you? I'm gonna go with three wins. So, yeah, I'm going under. I gotta take the under here as well. LA's not gonna be nice to us this week. Uh, we may we may steal a couple of wins in San Francisco, but by then I think we'll just be deflated from getting crushed by the Dodgers. Errors for the week over under. We've seen this team play terrible defense all year. It was at three and a half, but the line jumped, Doug. So it's now up to four and a half. We've got seven games over under four and a half team errors this week. Chris? Under. Doug? I'm going to say over. Typically when it rains, it pours with this team, and Terry's not a guy that cracks the whip. So I think that the struggles continue. Yeah, I'm going to say, actually, you know what? I put over, but I'm going to go under now that I'm thinking that maybe Terry's going to put Sashini out there at second and get Reynolds some playing time. Maybe the uh, the defense will kind of shore up a little bit, and I'll have to distance myself a little bit from Doug here. 
Um, over under hits from Michael Conforto, six and a half. Does he start to heat back up? The Mets will see three left-handed pitchers in the Dodgers series. Kershaw tonight, Alex Wood, who's had a resurgence in his career, and I think Ryu is pitching one of the other two games. And then we'll see two lefties in San Francisco in Ty Blatch and Matt Moore. Before Sunday's game, Michael Conforto was 12 for his last 69. Nice. Uh, the, to the tune of a 174 batting average with 23 strikeouts in 20 games since May 24th. He did go two for four Sunday with an RBI. Chris, over under six and a half hits for Michael Conforto. Could you have made these more depressing? Nope. Sorry. Under. Doug? I'm going to go over. I'm going to have faith in the kid. You got faith in Scooter. Well, I'm going to go under. I think there's too many tough lefties. He may squeak out a couple of hits late in games, but I think he gets six hits this week but not enough at-bats to really have a terrible batting average. Well, we conclude our show with a wait-and-see. Last week, Chris, you wanted to wait and see how do the Mets handle a six-man rotation. We saw DeGrom go deeper. Is this because of the extra day rest, Chris? Yeah, I think it definitely played a part in helping him. You know, we we were worried about whether he'd be able to bounce back from that complete game on Monday. You saw him get an extra day of rest and pitch really well on Sunday. So uh, I, I think it definitely contributed to it. It'd be interesting to see going forward now that Harvey... You know, we talked about the, that comment about the six-man rotation was before Harvey went out. Interested yeah. to see now how long they stick with that and how they how they handle it. Doug, your wait and see was to see if Rosario was going to come up, and you'll still be waiting for that. Um, and then Will wanted to see if Mets could climb back up to 500 against a tough slate of games, and they did not. They went in the opposite direction. This week, Chris, what is your wait and see? Uh, what I want, um, what I'm waiting to see is which happens first: Terry Collins being fired or Rosario getting up here. I don't think either of those happens this season. You really think, you know, you're not crazy. They are playing on the West Coast. It's a quick trip from Las Vegas. Um, that's that's an interesting wait and see, I think, if they continue to lose. I think one of them happens by the end of the week. I, I don't think both of them will happen. I don't think you fire Collins and then bring up Rosario right after you fired your manager and vice versa. I don't think you fire the manager right after you bring up Rosario. I think you have to make a decision one way or the other. Right. Um, but I think one of the two happens within the next week. It may Originally, I said I thought it would happen by Friday. It may not happen by Friday, but... Uh, over the course of the next week yeah. or so. I think we're on the precipice for both. Doug, what's your wait and see? Well, I'll give you my wait and see. Um, it's if the Mets show a pulse or not this week, or if they just go down like the sinking ship that they are. Um, and going back to the Terry thing, I think that the reason he's not going to get fired is because there's no obvious replacement. I don't know that there's anybody on the bench or in the organization that's that's like kind of an obvious choice yeah, been, to... I've been saying to that take all his, year to though. fill his role. I mean, no, that's that's ridiculous. That that's completely ridiculous. You could, Dick Scott could manage just as well as Terry Collins can. There's plenty of of managers you can bring from anywhere in the organization. Uh, that that's silliness. Uh, look, if you want to keep Terry Collins, keep Terry Collins, right? But this idea that he's not bringing he he doesn't bring anything exceptional to the table. Uh, and so I don't think you're losing much by firing him, and Dick Scott could fill in just as well. Chris, what I was trying, Chris, what I was trying to say was that at the time this team wasn't completely out of it, and they wanted Terry's head on a stick. So my my response and my argument was, okay, you want to fire Terry Collins to bring a spark to this team? Who's his replacement? Dick Scott's not gonna not gonna spark this team to a to a winning record. Two words. Somebody want Jerry Manuel. <laughs> He, Let's bring him back. He's a gangster. He will cut oh, you. Boy. My favorite quote ever. <laughs> this show has truly gone off the rails. It really has. One of our Twitter followers loved that quote as well. We've we've gone back and forth with that. Well, Jerry Manuel was certainly a character. Um, well, we move right along to the reason you gotta believe. I see a lot of blank spaces in our script here, so I'm gonna go with my reason you gotta believe. 
you know, the Mets were down for the count last season going to a tough West Coast road trip, and they ended up playing well, and it was the start of their turnaround. And, you know, let's see if the time away from home helps them regroup and focus on winning and playing a better brand of baseball. Uh, Doug, Chris, care to offer up your reason? you got to believe. Uh, in the script for this, I actually wrote fart noises. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to dub those in later. I have one. Here's my reason you got to believe. My grandfather is 87 years old. He is a lifelong Yankee fan, and he is watching Mets games so that he is more informed when he listens to our podcast. So after 87 years, the Mets have finally won over my grandfather. That's my reason you got to believe. But, you know, that's a pretty profound one if there is any. And, of course, we cap off the show with the Gary, Keith, and Ronism, and we didn't have one last week, so we'll have two this week, both courtesy of Keith. Um, Wheeler had Rizzo in, uh, in Wednesday's game. He had him 0-2 in a count, and Keith was just drooling about how Rizzo choked up two inches with two strikes, and he says, it'll be a battle now on guard. I, I like it. I like, you know, you're seeing actually a number of guys uh, go back to, to choking up a little bit. You know, Andrew's, Andrew's kind of tiny, so when he, when he picks up that aluminum bat, I have him choking up. Uh, so I think I think we started a trend down here in South. Got to choke up with two strikes, and of course, keep talking about how Mats is hitting with the bases loaded. Even if Mats hits a grand slam, it doesn't make it right. Keith, I disagree with that you. That is the perfect way to cap this show. Well, thanks again for listening to Generation K. Check back next week if we're still doing this for another episode. <laughs> you can find and subscribe to the podcast by searching Generation K. That's Q U E in iTunes. Please rate and review helps others find us, and please share our podcast with your fellow Met fans. Or if you really want to play a sick joke on a fellow Met fan, you can also find the podcast at soundcloud.com slash Generation K or on Stitcher and Overcast. Please reach out to us on Twitter at Gen K Podcast and give us a follow and some feedback. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. Agree with me about Terry Collins pinch hitting for Steven Matz. Also tweet at us with questions. No one's going to do we'll that. Ad- we'll address them on our next episode. We'd love to hear from fellow Met fans. You can also contact us on uh, online at our email, generationkpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thanks to Robin Ventura. Our theme song is L.A. Women by the Doors. 